Today on Point01, Dana Gunders, Executive Director of ReFed, joins Aaron to discuss the complexity of food waste. Dana published the revolutionary report, Wasted, How America is Losing Up to 40% of Its Food from Farm to Fork to Landfill, and from there began her journey as the woman who helped start the waste-free movement. Dana founded and led the NRDC's work on food waste, authored Waste-Free Kitchen Handbook, and testified in Congress, just to name a few projects. Her work on food waste has been featured on John Oliver, CNN, NPR, NBC, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and hundreds of other news outlets. Dana is the expert on food waste, and we are thrilled to talk with her about this multifaceted problem with no one-size-fits-all solution. Here's Dana and Aaron. Hi, everybody. It's Aaron Cohen uh, at Point01. I'm here today, really happy to have Dana Gunders with us, who's the executive director of ReFed and kind of famously like one of the leaders in figuring out how we can reduce food waste around the world. Uh, And Dana, thank you so much for being here today. Glad to be here, Aaron. So Dana, can you talk about uh, just like the, the, the 30,000 foot view of ReFed before we get started, give people a sense of where you, uh, how you spend your time? Sure. Um, ReFed is, uh, the only, is a nonprofit organization. We're the only nonprofit in the U.S. that is entirely dedicated to uh, reducing the amount of food that goes to waste across the food system. And we really try to focus on data-driven solutions and and how to advance those. Um, So we do a lot of cost-benefit analysis to to provide data and insights on on what really works to address this problem. Um, And and then we go out and try to bring more capital to the space to fund key solutions. And then we also focus on convening people. We know that there needs to be a lot of collaboration across the food system and outside of it to to really drive solutions. And so we we use those as our tools to to drive adoption of of great solutions in the end. Can you give people a sense of what you've been working on during uh, the pandemic? You know, we found ourselves in a situation where... All of a sudden, um, there were front page news stories on how much food was going to waste with, you know, piles of zucchini that weren't getting harvested, um, just millions of gallons of milk being dumped. And and then at the same time, those those incredibly powerful images of just miles long lines of people waiting at food banks and food pantries and, you know, staggering statistics around 70 percent increase in the number of people who were considered food insecure. Uh, And so our phone was kind of off the hook with people asking us, how can these both be happening at the same time? And what can we do about it? Um, And and where we found ourselves to be able to add value with so many people trying to help in that moment um, is that we have a really great network. We work with a ton of innovators and we have a great network of organizations who are working Um, to really kind of bring food rescue to the next generation. And so to look at how do we use technology or innovative business models um, to rescue more food that might otherwise go to waste. And we had run an accelerator actually with 
that as the core uh, the core mission of the accelerator. And so we we had a great network. We had already reached out to them saying, what do you all need in this moment to help you on the ground pivot to, to really get some of this food? And so what we wound up doing is uh, bringing together a relief fund. And, and we know there are there were tons of them out there. Um, for us, we were really trying to focus on a fund that would help rescue food that might otherwise be going to waste and get it to people who need it. And we we started off with a, a goal of a million dollars in the fund. Um, we at three and a half million decided to close it and, and we're kind of turning people away at the end. Um, but just sort of needed ourselves to, to refocus on some other things. And so um, that was really powerful. We, we supported about 37 grantees. It was 100% regranted. And those 37 grant, grantees moved about 50 million pounds of food during um, the few months. So, like, just t- talk talk a few about some of who those grantees were. Eighty uh, percent were nonprofit, and about twenty percent were actually for profit. You know, there's one called Move for Hunger, where they were actually trying to use moving trucks, which at the time were not very busy, right, to to transport food for food rescue. Good pandemic hack, right there, right? Like a simple idea. Exactly. Yeah, we had um, some college students who sort of started, you know, quite scrappily just going to farmers and saying, "Hey, what do you?" Have? Have, you know, can we bring it and and grew quite a bit over this time. Um, a, gr- a group called Farm Link to really be just bringing a lot of that food out there. Um, we had a grantee called um, Brighter Bites that really focuses on bringing nutritious food, and they were able to really leverage um, because of some partnerships they had on transportation to really leverage funds to get a lot more to the families they work with to provide you know kind of boxes of nutritional food directly to the families. Talk a little bit about like those those early years of this part of your career, what research you were doing, how that got started, and how you really ended up in the category. I became fascinated by this topic back in 2010 when I was working on a sustainable agriculture project with the fruit and vegetable industry and um, was kind of put in charge of this waste group that was really supposed to be looking at like irrigation piping and plastics. And there's actually a lot of physical waste in farming. And so that was the purpose of the group. But as part of that, I started stumbling upon these numbers of how much food was going to waste. And then the, the implications of that, right? The um, amount, the equivalent of oil barrels it would take to produce all that food and the water. Um, and so that really led me to this, you know, frankly, obsession around the issue. And I just felt like, why are we focusing so much on getting farmers to be more efficient with their water use, you know, five, 10% more efficient when 40% of the food is not actually being eaten. And the water footprint of that is so much larger. I had actually studied energy efficiency and was my focus in, in my undergrad. And so that whole concept of efficiency was, was there strongly. And I, and I really recognized like, hey, this is a parallel to energy efficient, to the field of energy efficiency in the energy sector. This is the parallel for the food sector, but nobody's doing anything about it and no one's even talking about it. Was this a kind of a light bulb moment for you or was it like a light bulb month or a light bulb year or how did it really work? 
I mean, there is a particular paper that I read um, and then went on to, to quote. It's that paper that established that 40% number that a lot of people have heard right now. Um, many people think that number came from my paper, but it actually was a National Institutes of Health paper um, done by kind of an obscure like kidney lab. Right? It's a, a lab that studies obesity and metabolism. And they had done this caloric evaluation of the food supply and how much people are eating. And, and they had found, wow, if people are only eating this much, then this much must not be getting eaten. And that's kind of how they came to that number. But that paper had not really gotten out there. And so for me, reading that paper and some of the equivalents of how much water it would take to grow that food was really the, the kind of aha moment. However, um, I wasn't working on it at the time. And so it took about a year and a half of um, what, what, advocating on my own personal part to like write an actual and publish a report on this um, internally within the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, where I was working um, to really kind of justify, hey, we should, you know, and, and um, at the time I thought, you know, maybe five people are going to read this report. Why did this get on this trajectory that it did? It did. It, it, it very quickly got picked up and put on CNN's breaking headlines. And I think that then everyone follows everyone else and, and kind of picked that up. But um, it just was not part of the conversation. And when you think about the number that 40% of food does not get eaten, I mean, that that is a staggering number. It is almost half of all the food. We still have really terrible data. And so um, it's, it's challenging to know, you know, that 40% number is very macro and is it perfect? Like probably not. And so, um, from a, from a quantitative perspective, it's pretty challenging to say where we've come. When you say, Hey, you know what, this new way of thinking about waste is working. We can scale it. We can do something that's of consequence. What pops into your mind as a kind of policy um, crafter slash promoter? So Sodexo has made a huge commitment to this issue in over the past eight years. I mean, that, that has happened in this eight year period. Um, they have rolled out waste tracking in like 3000 of their kitchen facilities or they're in process of doing that. They have incorporated um, food waste reduction into their performance evaluation and bonus incentive program. And so, you know, some really kind of core structure to then help them waste less food. What makes Sodexo, Sodexo different from, you know, Marriott or, you know, whatever no other number of companies exist in the space that produce, you know, food at incredible scale? I think there's a clear financial case for that company. Um, it, but they're not alone, right? I mean, most Compass, Aramark, the big food service companies, they're all really pretty active in this space. Kroger has um, gone gone really big with their zero hunger, zero hunger, zero waste commitment. Um, and they're showing really great results. They came out with their report last year showing a 9% reduction in the amount of food going to landfill out of their stores. Um, they're the second largest grocer in the country. I think sort of selling wholesale change across a company is a process and different companies are at different phases of that process and the economics look different depending on what business you're in. To be honest, the next phase, once we sort of come out with our next analysis, 
part of our next journey is starting to ask companies like, why aren't you doing this? Because from our analysis, it seems like a really obvious thing to do. You know, it pays for itself, it saves you food, it saves, it reduces your climate impact. You know, it's like all wins. Why, are, why aren't you doing it? What about these 40 new ideas that ReFed's working on? Where do you see a lot of opportunity in that list? Obviously, we're not going to go through all 40, but like hit me with um, Dana's top five that you're optimistic about in the 2020s. There's a few ways to think about this. When, when you have 40% of food going to waste, if you waste less in your own four walls, right? Um, and, and as a business, you likely don't have that much going to waste, but you know, you have 10% that you're not actually selling. As a business, you reduce that to 8%, you save money, right? So there's like a very natural business case for some of this. Um, I don't want to oversell that because I think there are other priorities. And the reason we have as much waste as we do in some cases is that food is cheap and other things are more expensive. And so when you're maximizing your like business equation, business profit equation, you may actually be designing in throwing food out as part of that because labor is more expensive because real estate's more expensive because disappointing a customer feels more expensive. Right. So, um, so the, the economics are not quite as obvious as they may sound always. What we are trying to do at that systems level is to be able to have that conversation and as, as kind of forthright away as we can, because if it doesn't pay, but the world still wants it to happen for other reasons, but it doesn't sort of fall into direct like business interest, well, that's a great place for philanthropic capital to come in or for public capital to come in in that space. Your point is Kroger doesn't want to spend money to help food banks increase their refrigeration. That's a tough sell. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it actually isn't because there are great tax benefits, right? And so if you can't donate, you can't access those tax benefits. But, you know, you do have MGM, for instance, putting almost a million dollars into a blast chiller at their food bank because when they're having big events with 15,000 people at it, they have a, they have sometimes or they have a ton of extra food and it actually, um, you know, they can't donate it unless that blast chiller is there essentially. Right. And so do the economics work out? Mm, probably takes a long time if they do, even with those better tax benefits. Are there philanthropies that you think are doing exceptional work at following your lead and, and really putting their money where their mouth is and, and, and what's motivating them? Is it hunger? Are there hunger issues motivating them? Are there climate issues motivating them? Is it, is it a combination? Where do you see the philanthropic community in terms of their engagement? Yeah, well, if you look historically, um, certainly there's kind of always been philanthropic support of food banks and other hunger relief type of organizations. And I think there's, um, you know, kind of a, not a tension, but I think people sometimes conflate um, sort of the food insecurity problem with the food waste problem. And they're not exactly the same. And if you, so if you want to solve the, the problem that too much food is going to landfills, you might do something differently than if you want to solve um, the fact that people are going hungry, right? So there, and there are places where they overlap, but anyone who really is, is close in that hunger world will tell you that, that 
giving people food does not solve hunger and it does not solve food insecurity. To really solve those problems, you need to be working on um, poverty and inequality and homelessness and just some, some really basic societal problems. Um, so I guess I would just say that first to say, even when people do give money to kind of, they come to this food waste space, seeing it as a nice win-win, I think that that reality does exist, right? And so the way that reducing food waste overlaps with the hunger issue is that um, if we have surplus food out there, we may as well get it to people to kind of be part of that emergency food relief system as opposed to, to throwing it out. Um, so historically, we've seen a lot of philanthropic money coming from that side of things. Um, more recently, we are seeing quite a bit of interest from climate funders who are interested in how do we address climate change. They go to Project Drawdown, they see that food waste is listed as the number one sol solution to addressing climate change. They tend to be quite surprised by that. And they then go, okay, so what do we support? And they don't necessarily want to build out... Um, cold chain infrastructure for food banks with that, right? They, they really want to get at the prevention side of this. They want to, what they are after is feeding the world with less resources to begin with. And um, the way you really do that is to improve the efficiency in supply chains and in the way businesses are operating. Um, and that is tends to fall into that for-profit side of things. So it's actually, frankly, kind of a, a very current challenge as to how can the philanthropic community interested in climate change um, mitigation, how do they direct their money to this problem in an effective way? And, and that's a really kind of current question for us. And, and we try to get creative with that and, and think about what are some initiatives that can kind of help businesses adopt some of these solutions. Um, that's why I want to know, you know, why aren't you business X picking up this really obvious solution? Because maybe there is some sort of philanthropic component to making the system work faster, right? Um, and getting some of these solutions adopted more quickly. I'd love to hear your thoughts on like whether people are leaning into your simple cost saving ideas or whether you think it's not high gloss enough or something. Yeah, no, that's, a, I think, an interesting observation. I, I don't know why food waste as a topic is quite as sexy as it has become in a way. I mean, it, it has attracted kind of a, a particular energy around it that I, I'm always surprised by, I guess. Um, and I think, um, honestly, I think it depends who you're talking to, right? I think there are people within businesses who care quite a bit about cost savings and don't care about things being sexy. And, and so I, I think there's work to do to get to the CFOs and the supply chain managers or the store managers or whoever it is to, because they do care about that. Um, that's not a, yeah. So I, I think that's really important. Um, I think, a lot of the work that needs to be done on this topic is not sexy. Um, some of it's even less sexy than a than a sensor, uh, you know, than, than like sort of a cold storage. A gadget. 
a gadget. Yeah, that's right. You don't even have the gadget. At it's least like, we have a gadget. It's like, can you get your staff to follow the SOP that says not to leave stuff on the dock more than 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. Um, or yeah. whatever, right? So there's a lot of it that, there's a lot of it, frankly, that already, it's not even new, right? It's just about doing stuff the way you're supposed to do it. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I, I think there are some examples where it is basically a cost saving that has um, that have done really well. I, I think of Appeal, the, the company that, and they're an interesting case actually through all of this because they were initially funded by the Gates Foundation. So we're talking about philanthropic capital coming into this, right? Um, the the research, the R and D behind creating an edible coating that could extend shelf life, that was that was philanthropically funded. And then there was some early stage kind of venture capital. And then they drew the, the larger um, investment. And, but they, you know, their main pitch is like, they give the supply chain longer to use the product. And so you throw less of it away. And, and so I, I think that is a cost saving. And I'm not sure why that I mean, it is. Well, it's also a revenue creator. No, no, no. That's that. That, that again. There, that's sexier, right? Because you can sell more apples, right? It's not. It's not just that you, you throw away fewer. You also sell more, and and I, I agree with you. Appeals come up. It's amazing, by the way, JC. We've got to get appeal to be on the podcast. They come up in so many conversations. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking about your daughter walking in. You know, and and I, you and I are at different points in our parenting trajectory, and I've got a a kid in college and one in high school. And I, I wonder if you think about, you know, you're 13 years away from her going to school. And, and, and what, when you think about like what you want out of the next decade from a food waste standpoint, you know, that'll be your second decade in the space if you continue the journey. Um, where, where does it end as your daughter goes off to college? Where, 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 and we're not end, but where does it get to? What can we accomplish over the next decade um, in order to say, Hey, you know what, these, this has been completely worth it. Like we are making real strides here. I mean, clearly in the first decade, it is the intelligentsia knows that we waste a lot of food. That was to your point, you were one of the intelligentsia when you found out we wasted a lot of food. So you don't need much more validation than that. Right? Like you were, you were a part of the tribe. You're at NRDC and like you're finding this out for the first time, right? It's not, you know, th those are in fact eureka moments. So now jet forward another 10 years roughly. What, what does it look like? What, what yeah, have we I mean, done? I think probably the key opportunities to really nail down are one, shifting the culture, right? So that it's as shocking to throw a quarter of a sandwich in the garbage can as it is to throw out, throw it out onto the street. Um, and just, I think that culture shift that underpins so much of what we need to see because so much of waste is, is actually by design right now because it's trying to meet some other customer expectation. So we need to shift the culture so, so that we can shift those expectations and, and the way businesses are, are responding to them. Um, I think number two is we have this opportunity through um, fundamentally like machine learning and big data now to use those types of technologies and maybe IoT, you could throw IoT in there to just 
tighten up the way food businesses are run. Um, better forecasting solutions like yours, where you know just better cold chain management. Um, so image recognition to really track and measure things a little bit better. Um, I'd like to see those. And then um, I'll just say that something I would, uh, and then the third is policy. And from a policy perspective, you know, it, it feels like a big lift right now because of the way waste policy is done in the US. But if we just banned food from landfills across the country, we would, uh, we would be in a different place, right? Um, so I think those those are probably the three big ones. And then I'll throw a fourth in there, which is more of an R&D innovation thing that we don't have yet. But if I could have a magic wand that I could wave over food and it would tell me if it's safe to eat or not, um, that, that I think would really change the game when it comes to the very precautionary rules that we have and very broad rules we have right now that are, um, causing a lot of food to go to waste in the name of food safety. So you think people are overly cautious, not underly cautious. I think rules are, are broad because, right. because they're not, they don't allow for a, a sort of technology solution that's more precise. So everything that's out for four hours, right. Just has to be at a certain temperature has to be thrown away period. Right. I, 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 I that's absolutely the case. I mean, we now have seen at scale in our work in the cold chain that over chilling is the norm. That people have to keep their refrigeration at lower temperatures so that they don't risk violating these rules. And as a result of that, again, you're talking about massive, massive energy costs. Um, in the, and, and you know, think about what, what the energy costs have been like in energy usage has been like in the last week in California alone, as the temperature has soared and everyone's had to keep their refrigerations even lower and lower and lower. I, I, I just think, I mean, we know this is a big problem. We see that this is a big problem. Um, so Dana, that, that that's interesting. I, I, I um, there's so much more to talk about with you clearly. Uh, I hope you'll, I hope we can get you to come back and 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 explore sort of on a year by year basis what kind of strides we've making. I feel like um, you know we need to continue to check in on the refed report on an annual basis because um, Project Drawdown has you know anointed food waste the uh, the most important thing we most important uh, uh, crisis we face uh, in climate. So. Um, we look forward to having you again. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me, for kind of spreading the word. Really fascinating conversation. So appreciate it. And keep up with the awesome work you guys are doing. Thank you to Dana for taking the time to talk about her journey in ending food waste. If you want to stay up to date with Dana and her work, please follow her on Twitter at dgunders. We've also linked Refed's social media and website in the description. The Point One podcast is produced by Therma, a smart refrigeration monitoring company. To follow along with Therma's clean cooling initiatives and Point One content, find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at HelloTherma, also linked below. Make sure to subscribe to never miss a conversation and leave us a review. We look forward to our next Point One conversation.